Once Sharon Salzburg was in Burma at a monastery and in conversation with an elderly monk who'd been a monk for the majority of his life since he was a child and who was a scholar and one of these minds who could remember and quote the teachings of the Buddha from all and sundry of the 36 volumes of the recorded teachings. And she said, in true American fashion, if you could take all of these teachings, all of these lifetime of all of that you've studied and all of these volumes and condense them for me into one crystal of essence of the teachings of the Buddha, what would it be? The shortcut to enlightenment kind of attitude. And he said, thinking very briefly, know what you're doing. When we think a little bit about this, we sort of vaguely know what we're doing all the time, but actually not really. We're doing a lot of what we're doing automatically, by rote, under the radar, many a time reacting, without really choosing to do it that way. We aren't really knowingly doing what we do. We come up with ideas and responses and words and gestures so rapidly, basically heedlessly. The description of this phrase means to know what we're doing is to be present and conscious of ourselves as we do all that we do. That's another definition for mindfulness. And the Buddha, when he gave all these years of teaching, said over and over that to be able to be mindful, know what we're doing as we do it, there are four areas to actually pay particular attention to. And the first of the four, and many of you know, is our physical reality, is mindfulness of the body. Bhikkhus, he said. You can think of yourself as bhikkhus. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of all sorrow and all lamentation, for the disappearance of all pain and grief. Gone for the attainment of the true way, the realization of Nibbana, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. So I want to go into and share with you why this foundation of mindfulness is so extraordinarily powerful and helpful. And it's funny because I remember right now that at the very beginning of our retreat, I was the one saying, begin again, and that we always need to begin again. And I don't know, I'm probably as guilty as anyone of saying, yes, I know about that. I know about the body. I'm good at being in my body, yes. And I want more, you know, and I want to understand more subtlety in this and this. And yet, in preparing this for you this evening, I'm just so, um, I don't know, inspired by the depth and the power of this actual practice. And so I want to explore this together with you and help you really appreciate the value of this part of our practice. Mm. 
A lot of it is obvious, but I want you to um, be alert for an attitude of dismissiveness. Yes, I know this. I heard recently a talk by um, a teacher who was quoting some other teacher, a Tibetan teacher, saying that when we listen to the Dharma, it behooves us to listen like a bowl without the defects that a bowl might have. So this is what I'm encouraging you to do. Here's a bowl, relatively without defects, I would say. There are apparently three defects classically attributed to bowls. One is they have a hole in them. And so whatever goes in goes right on through. How is your mind? In one ear and out the other, for example, would be that defect. Or, you know, when we're attending a college and studying something that we're not really connecting with in our hearts, it might come into our minds and out of our pens into our notebooks, but not really held. So we don't want the defect of a hole in the bowl. We don't want the defect of the bowl having no space, and whatever comes to it can't even penetrate because it's already full up of anything else or something, or not listening, really. We won't receive any benefit. And the third one is a bowl which already has got something in there that um, will contaminate what new thing comes in. An old piece of meat is the example. So you pour in your green tea, and there's like this other rotten thing I mean there, so you don't actually then get green tea, you get some other weird combination. This would be polluted by your previous views and opinions. So with that in mind, the body, of course, unless we've had some severe damage to the cerebral spinal column and can no longer perceive it is absolutely, utterly available at all moments of our conscious life. Every possible occasion, every and any moment until we fall asleep and wake up the next morning. So there's no need to pretend it's not there. (laughs) It's completely accessible for everyone all the time. That makes it very useful indeed. Also, the experience that's embodied is very direct. It's not via some complicated having-to-figure-it-out maze. Here it is, right here, pretty close to our apprehension. So it's simple and it's um, unfiltered. Whatever we're experiencing in the body is very close to how things are. On the other hand, if our minds have something already in them, for instance, and some information comes, our minds can very easily have a lot of filtering about what's happening. Not so the body. You know, if it's being squished, it's being squished, and that's that, and we know that. If it's hot, it knows it. It's pretty direct and clear, indisputable. That's pretty useful, reliable. Um, The kinds of experience that is able to be perceived that's physical is the kind of experience that everyone gets to experience that's physical. It isn't personal. 
okay, what's so special about that? Well, what's helpful about that is that by apprehending, by giving our attention to a physical experience, we are tuning into universal reality rather than egotistical, individual separateness, rather along the lines Rodney was talking about last night. The apprehending of deep truth takes us to deep truth. The apprehending of individuality and personality keeps us separated from it. And in the same very close family to this is the body functions not as my agent, but really as a representative, not even a representative of as nature. It's actually nature's body here. This is Earth's belonging. I get to have consciousness residing in it, but it isn't really, when you think and you start contemplating of it, my body. I maybe wouldn't have designed it quite with these attributes. (laughs) I might have had it do it lightly differently. I might have made it stay six, maybe another 20 years. So the aspects of it that I get to see, so many, are revealing to me not what I want to to understand or know or is in my agenda, my egotistical relative point of view. It's actually the big point of view. Right here, available all day, all night, completely, unavoidably, indisputably available. So that's pretty good teaching, pretty reliable teaching. So we have this thing, we're sort of somehow popped into that emerges, that develops in some extraordinary combination of circumstances that we have absolutely nothing to control over, no choice over, with certain genes, certain coloring, certain personalities, all of this, tendencies, IQs, faculties, that really isn't yours. It's ours. We have these things, extraordinary things. And we just watch it. We watch it getting bigger and stronger and more able and more skillful and then having damage and wounds and diseases and things breaking down and it getting saggier and the smooth skin becoming... (laughs) That's called aversion. That's the sound of aversion I hear. And yet, you know, because you see it every day, you know, we, can, we don't really look. We're asked to really look, see this. It's extraordinary how it changes the way you don't necessarily want it to. Recently, I was with a little girl and a, a friend of mine. A friend of mine is about 66, maybe. And the little girl is probably 10 or 11. No, she was younger than that. She be 7. And, uh, and she, we were sitting fairly close together, actually, on a boat. And, uh, and she said to him, she said, You've got granddad's hands. He was like, hmm, <laughs> I guess I have. You know, and they're kind of, you know, you can, she was pinching them and they stayed pinched and they had blotches on it, you know, and he was like, I guess they are like that. Very truth-revealing things, these bodies 
So we don't need to hang on to and um, take on what isn't ours. So when the body's tired, okay, so the body's tired. We don't have to be, I am tired. Should I be tired? Why am I tired? Maybe I should have done something differently. It's just a body that's tired, you know, and aching or that it's sick instead of berating ourselves and analyzing it and blaming somebody and wishing we could rerun the, you know, the last few weeks or years or it's a natural thing that happens because of all these other things that happen. Can we let that be? It's very helpful. Give to nature what is nature's. Don't take what you don't need to take on. Very freeing. So when it gets older, it gets up in the morning, it's stiffer. We just take that, you know, oh, God, I'm getting so stiff. got to do more yoga. <laughs> okay, we know these things. They're fairly obvious. A huge aspect of the value of the body and contemplating it is that it, because of these attributes I've already described, it is the most extraordinary amplifier of our inner reality. It's like uh, reflects out or reveals a lot of what's going inside, our inner world, our inner mental states, emotional states, energetic patterning. It's all available. We can see it all like loudspeaker. Some people are very good at body language. Actually, we're all very good at reading body language, but we don't give it a lot of consciousness. But we perceive hugely about the body and body language on others. But if we use this as a contemplation, we can actually read our own inner language on our bodies unbelievably usefully. So it's very, um, it's directly connecting us to ourselves in that way. One of the things I read a long time ago now about the descriptions of the Buddha was when um, there was an elderly, was in the days of his life, there was an elderly teacher who heard about the Buddha being somewhere in the neighborhood or fairly, you know, a hundred miles or so, a couple of days walk away. But he was elderly and he wanted to go and be with the Buddha if the Buddha was the real deal, if he was in fact a fully awakened one and finally in this lifetime, this was possible. But he was old and he didn't want to go unless it was the real deal because it was a long way. So he sent his young monks to go and check out this guy and see, you know, is he worth it for me to go? And, uh, and so they checked out the Buddha and came back and reported to him. And they described the various asp- attributes and signs to show that this actually was a fully enlightened being. And some of the descriptions of this being they gave him to, to give him the confidence in it was the way the Buddha moved. And he would move, for instance, he wouldn't walk too fast or too slow. He wouldn't eat too much or too little. He didn't, um, he didn't do any inappropriate action, in other words. So he would just pick something up with the right amount of energy. He wouldn't grab at it and squish it, or he wouldn't miss it. So this is the um, a announcement of pure mindfulness. And when you think of it, when I thought of it, I thought of grace. Somebody who's moving very gracefully. When you have a very trained person who's very, you know, their body is very trained dancer or something, right to the tip of their finger, they're knowing exactly what's going on. That's why it looks so beautiful, because there's such consciousness right through everything. On the other hand, when we're heedless, 
and we're not all here and we're all busy distracted, we crash, we drop, we break, we bump into, we trip over, we have accidents. We crash around this life. It's very easy to actually notice how mindful you are as to how clumsily or not you're moving through this building. People stomping, banging doors, people gracefully placing their shoes neatly. As retreats progress, as time goes by, the shoes get tidier, the tissues get replaced with care, you know, all these little things. It's just a demonstration. And, I mean, just in how you eat, people talk, one of my earlier teachers would talk about, how do you actually stab your piece of broccoli? Do you do it just right? Or do you miss a few times, you know? Like, watch yourself, watch your body, watch how are you here? How are you conscious? Are you aware? Are you present? It's right here. It'll show you. I have a friend who's um, a dear friend, and uh, she's very, a very smart, heady, quick kind of a person, and she breaks everything she touches, practically. <laughs> but she's very developed in one area, but she's so not connected to the physical reality. You don't give her a good wine glass, you know. <laughs> Give her a bib for a napkin and stuff. <clears throat> so um, this body reveals this inner, our inner states. So we can read in ourselves much more directly when we're anxious. We sort of know we're anxious in a vague way, but then when you, f- you feel anxiety in your body, it's really clear. Or fear you know, or needing or wanting something. You know, how you push and shove to get in the front of the lineup or whatever it is you're doing. People, you know, who are timid, there it is, demonstrated. It's like a book, a picture book. And not just the mind, but the heart too. So for instance, if there's a mental state of calm, we will be able to read a body that's relaxed and loose and easy. And we will no doubt be able to then, if we pay attention, feel a heart that's open and available and soft. They all belong together, and we can read them when we contemplate our bodies. Sometimes it's extremely physical, like, you know, with a lot of, if we're really creepy, creeped out in some place that gives us the creeps, our hair stands on end. I mean, it's really a physical manifestation. The adrenaline comes up, the heart beats faster, you know, like it's very, very literal. Sometimes it's more subtle and more energetic. But we have in our language, this language, we talk about, you know, somebody whose heart was really lighthearted, you know, or really filled very heavy-hearted. We talk about people who are, um, when they're agitated, we say, oh, hot and bothered. Well, bothered is kind of the theory. Hot is the actual physical experience. Or cool and calm and collected. There's cool in there because you can actually perceive that chill that's not an agitated feeling and so on. I mean, we, we know this, but we can really perceive this very clearly when we contemplate our bodies Talk about sinking, you know, waiting for that person to get off the train and waiting and waiting and our heart's sinking. They feel like they're sinking sometimes. And sometimes they feel like they're flying. Recently I was um, in England. I just actually did my 
formal practice period at Gaia House, a place that uh, Yanai teaches and visits a lot and spends much time at. And um, I grew up in England, as you can probably tell. And um, so I went back before my retreat time and did a little visiting around the places that I really enjoy. I love the countryside. I grew in a little village. I grew up in a little village in the south of England. And so I walk along the moors and the downs and the cliff tops and go to visit old stone circles and things that aren't available on the west coast of Canada. And my very first morning, I was walking along a 6,000-year-old walk. It's called the Ridgeway, along the downs. And as I walked up, began to get up into some height and could start seeing far away from the fir trees of the rainforest of BC, my heart, honestly, it felt like it was going to rise out of my chest. I was like hanging on to it some of the time for joy because of the beauty which I know I enjoy. I physically could feel this feeling. Lots of physical response to our inner reality. We use the word uptight. The Buddha said, the pure heart's release. The word release, of Rodney's talking about last night, actually is physical. The heart can we let go. There's an um, article, and some of you may well have read it. This fall, The Inquiring Mind came out, and there was an article in there about the wiring, because, you know, neuroscience is so much more popular with all the information available, about um, how we humans are hardwired mentally um, for defense. Did anybody read this article? It's very interesting. I'm going to quote a little bit of you, a um, little bit for you. The earliest mammals which lived to pass on their genes were nervous and jumpy, quick to notice potential threats and to remember painful experiences. Those which became absorbed in the pleasure of a good meal and sweet-smelling flowers, crunch. (laughs) They were eaten, having missed the sound of slithering nearby. This nervous jumpy circuitry is active now in our amygdala and hippocampus, etc. We are hardwired to scan for bad experiences, threats, and to hold them in our memory for rapid recall to protect ourselves. In contrast, positive experiences are usually registered in um, our normal memory systems, and they must be held for 10 to 20 seconds in our conscious awareness to actually sink in. It's how we've survived so well. So when you think of our language again, which is really the expression of our experience, there are, I was just thinking of a few words. I've just come up with some. Cower, balk, shrink, run, dodge, duck, Gasp, duck, flee, freeze, veer, hold firm, brace, dive, skip, leap, wince, resist. There's millions of verbs describing this nervy, jumpy behavior, and there are not very many words describing the opposite. This is our expression of ourselves, being alive in this world. So we are actually wired for um, perceiving the negative. We're not so well wired for perceiving the beauty and the loveliness. So it hasn't served for us to survive this way. So 
in our experience, you're sitting here, a lot of what's in your mind and what you're conscious of is your pain and your frustration and when will the bell ring and, oh, I don't know if I'm getting this together. And some of it will be, this is groovy, I'm so glad I'm here, and, you know, and gratitude and thank the neighbor. But there's a lot of irritability inside us all. And it's the way we are. It's not, it shouldn't be any other way. But it's just helpful to have some space for the truth of that and to know that actually the whole of the teachings are we're swimming against the stream of how we've evolved to survive in order to become free. And so we're needing to swim against this potential for being irritated and critical and judging ourselves and others so easily. It takes a little more consciousness to bring some forgiveness or some allowance or some gratitude. It's a more sophisticated way of behaving. This article said that our brains are like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. (laughs) So one of the things, I mean, you know, like, I was just going to talk about the fire alarm this morning, and I wanted to apologize to you that we didn't warn you ahead. I was in in a group this morning when one of the managers came in, and she just popped her head in and said, they're going to be checking fire alarms this morning. And then I went on with that and didn't think of saying anything when I came in the hall. And so a number of you had no idea. And so was that, you know, talk about wired defensively, you know, it's like, (laughs) so I wanted to apologize that we had absolutely no warning, but you could really see your, your ability to be prepared for flight and fright at that. (laughs) Um, I'm going to just mention this in passing and not focus on it, but it's worth mentioning because it's very important, is um, as we do our practice of being present and trying to open up to how things are, um, there are very clearly uh, described and very recognizable and very recognizable in the body um, stumbling blocks or uh, experiences which we have which get in the way of being able to open up and be here. These are known, many of you know, called the hindrances. Wanting something other than what is already happening. Not wanting what is happening. Craving aversion. We can feel craving in the body. You can feel that yearning or that leaning towards or being a couple of steps ahead of yourself. Right, you feel it. You can feel it all the time. Some people make this their only practice. They can do this for, you could do this for a lifetime. Keep being very aware of every physical manifestation of wanting something. The opposite, aversion. Many different ways we can perceive this. Pulling in, shrinking in, being aggressive towards, turning away from, putting up walls and so on. Many, many ways it's recognizable. Agitation, restlessness, worry. How do you know you're worried? You feel it, you're squirming, you're wriggling, you're just jumpy inside, you want to, you know, make big movements, run. Very, very directly perceivable. It's opposite dullness, sleepiness, sloth and torpor. Sinking. We all know, I don't know anyone in, who's been, we've been talking to in the last couple of days who hasn't mentioned dullness and sleepiness. The fifth of them is um, doubt. That's a whole talk, so I'm not going to do it now. Maybe my next talk I'll talk about doubt. 
we can um, perceive in the body. Sometimes when we meditate, particularly if we have longish time, you know, some weeks together to become very quiet, we can, in uh, states of really quiet, deep concentration, jhana experiences, very clearly in the body we can feel states of happiness. In fact, we are taught to let the body feel suffused with happiness or sweetness or um, calm. We can feel calm, stillness. The body becomes so still. The mind becomes so still. It's an experience of unbelievable ease and quiet peacefulness. Nothing's like it. But the whole, it, you feel it in the cell level. The cells relax so deeply. It's very physical. Whatever we experience has this physiological echo or louder than an echo. What happens is something occurs to us, millions of things all the time, we're bombarded actually by things occurring to us, either from outside ourselves, hitting our eardrums or our eyeballs or our skin or our mouths or up our noses, or thoughts and ideas and images and so on pop up into our minds. We're bombarded by stimulus. <clears throat> this is called contact. And right away, faster than we can catch, we perceive something of this contact, and we, from our experience, make it, we give it a name, a label, a meaning, and then we respond to this. And off we go with a whole lot of description, comment, and response. Unless it's something that doesn't really imply anything to us. We don't have to do anything about it, in which case we don't even notice it. This is how it works. This process, contact, perception, and then the proliferation of mental states. Proliferation is papancha. The trouble is that the proliferation isn't usually often appropriate. It's often the bowl filled already with something, and so we have already a story, and so we already have a version of reality. So we make this impact thing into something. As Joseph has said to you, I'm sure a lot of you have heard him say, the ears hear a sound, and the mind thinks, bird. They're separate, but they happen so rapidly, they're one on top of the other. The body, and being conscious of the body, if we, we can perceive the impact of whatever the thing is and stay closer to its purity, if we give that our attention, we aren't going to get so carried away in our story about it. This is the huge value of contemplating the body. When we don't use the body, it's almost like a filter. It's like quite a barrier because it's a, an alive thing, but it's, um, it's like a boundary between being caught up in our story about what's happening and what's actually happening. And what we're trying to learn in all of this is to be with what is just happening and that's that and let it be there. But because it's so quick, this process of contact and perception, then off we go into papancha, the body consciousness really helps stop that one, two, three step. 
It really helps us be able to let things be just as they are and have them be amplified in their innocence, in their original form, because we're not giving all of our attention to our mental story about it. We're occupying our attention with just the reality of the thing in a very tangible, direct, available way. So if we give fully our attention like this to the body, we aren't going to get so carried away and lost in our perceptions and our illusions and our reactions and our judgments. It's a huge protection. I remember when I was in my uh, midwifery training, it's very, very obvious, such a strong example of this. I did my uh, some apprenticeship in Jamaica. I was in this big hospital in Kingston, Jamaica, and a very busy hospital and uh, with relatively limited facilities. And the women who were in labor would come, but they had no space to allow any of their family with them, so they were by themselves, which is pretty scary. The average age in this hospital when I was there in the 70s, no, it was, must have been the early 80s, was 17. So many of these women were 15, some were 14, you know. It's rare to have a 25-year-old in there. So here are these young women all alone, and the ones that I was paying attention to and the majority who came to the hospital and didn't just stay at home were having baby number one, and they didn't have any organized in the country, I don't think, childbirth preparation, which was an area of my expertise, and so I was acutely aware of the lack thereof with these young women. They were scared, needless to say, all alone, no companionship, in pain, without any preparation. And what happened to their minds when they had the pains of their labor, their minds, because of the fear and no one to reassure them and and ignorance, their minds went into a state of completely thinking this was, they were going to die, some of them. They were absolutely terrified. You know, and all they needed was somebody to stay and sit and hold their hands and say, it's normal, you're doing fine, everything's okay, everyone feels like this. And they would like cling on and say, don't leave me, nurse, like, why are you so nice? Oh my God. Because they, all they needed was a different mindset. It wasn't about the pain. It's painful, absolutely. But they were turning it into a, a way worse scenario than it need to be. Just a really clear example of an exaggerated version of what we do with every experience we have. We, we, turn it, we dress it up and turn it into a whole other deal. And then we're run by that. So if we habitually, by training ourselves, have a reference to our bodies, we stay grounded in what's actually happening and not lost in what we're making it into. We're protected from getting carried away, getting possessed by whatever it may be, anger, fear, in the grip of whatever the passion, because we're realistic, we're actually much more clear. We can bring our attention to the body or something the body's doing, the body breathing. That's what we mean by being grounded. It means realistic rather than confused and distorted. This way, with this body that can help us be realistic, we then can turn our attention to what is difficult in our experience without getting scared by it. 
or lost in all of its implications. If we don't have this kind of grounding, we get overwhelmed by and confused by the difficult things. Knowing this, and with our wiring to be guarded against the negative, we do all we can to avoid it. So we don't go there, or we don't think about it, or we get completely ex- you know, exaggerated about worried, and then we blame ourselves and we blame other people and we justify and we go back to try and understand how that can be happening again, didn't I know already? And it gets exhausting, and we're no clearer. If we can have some body consciousness, we can hold steady, connected to the present moment, to what's really real, and we can say, okay, fear feels like this. And we can actually turn our attention to what we normally don't want to in a safe way and experience a reduced version of the difficulty rather than the expanded, hyped-up, over-dramatized version, which is what our mind has added. So we stay in a much more um, realistic, simple experience. And then it's extraordinary. And how many of you had that experience? It's like... I was able to look and be, and it just dissolved. I had this feeling of anger, and it was hot, and it was this, and it did this, and it came, and then it just subsided, and I was just... Somebody described it beautifully in one of the groups that we were in um, about fear and anxiety that turned from being this thing that was threatening to being this feeling that was holding her. She felt held by it, safe in it. It's actually a bunch of sensation we turn it into a much bigger drama. But if we can just stay with this simple elemental reality, it's heat, it's clutching, it's sweating maybe, it's vibration, whatever it is, and we can stay and watch it. And then what happens is, instead of it being fear, for instance, I'm using that as an example, it becomes a swirling mass of sensation that moves, that changes, that dances, that comes, that goes. Just this. It's, we reduce, there's that word um, in chemistry, you reduce a matter to its elements. That's what we're doing. By being able to turn towards and be with and stay with and allow and relax with whatever the experience so particularly the difficult ones, which we don't want to do, we can then be with. And that's all that we're being asked to do here. If we can turn our attention towards and be with whatever experience, we start seeing the deep truth of it, not our perceived version of it, but what actually it is. And it's one more passing flow of experience. Um, a teacher that I was uh, studying with in Burma a year ago, Utejan Nia, some of you may know that name, um, one of the ways he, one of the phrases he used in teaching was he says, don't get involved. Just don't get involved. Just let whatever it is come, like they're passing show. You're, or you're going down the road and there are all these side shows. Keep on just going. Don't stop and sit down and get involved with it. 
And then he said, what actually gets involved is greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what gets involved. Without wanting something or having aversion or struggling with something, there's no need to be involved with anything. It's just life happening, more of this, some of this. There's a dance to it. There isn't this getting all caught up. Keep awareness of what's happening in your body, much, more le- much less likely to get involved. Very helpful. It's a buffer. Pain. Physical pain. I just want to be specific here because this is very, this is very helpful. Sooner or later... Most people will have some experience while sitting here of some physical pain. Some people it's a lot. Some people it's often, sometimes just occasional. Physical pain in your body. It's compelling. It's like, here it is. Very hard. How do you not get involved when there it is? You know, your mind is sucked there. It just is out of your control. So... Um, There's some skillful ways to deal with this. The benefit, of course, is that you're really here and you're not lost in thought in some Paris shopping mall. I don't know if they have malls in Paris. I guess they must. They don't have any malls in downtown Paris. (laughs) So you're you're here and you're present, but very quickly it's difficult because it's painful. So you're there's not just pain, there's your mind. Oh, no, oh, this is going to last forever. I wonder if I'm going to be able to keep doing these retreats, or whatever your mind does. So what's helpful is to not go straight right into the thing. You can back off a little and go and see if you can locate this pain in your body. and See if you, lo- you, see if you can locate the extent of it and the boundaries of it and go beyond the edges and then come back to just the edges where you're just beginning to perceive it you're much less likely to get involved and caught up and struggle because you're not, it's not so heavy. It's lighter around the edges. And even leave the edges and go, if it's, say, say it's your knee, come up your leg and see how far up does it radiate and where is it comfortable. And then put your attention where it's comfortable so it's not such a struggle. And then go back and check it out a little bit. And just go all around like that. You can, that can take 10 minutes. You're being with what's happening but without getting caught in it. If it's really intense, you can do that for a while, and then you can go somewhere completely different where there's no pain. Earlobes are great for this. They don't have emotion. They don't have much sensation. You can feel them, but they're very subtle. Or some other part of your body. You know, like if it's in your leg, then go to your hands or your arm or something. And be with yourself and your body. You're present and you're interested, but without the struggle of it. And then go back after a while, or it'll pull you back. That's useful. Another thing you can do is to go to it, but ask and try to see if you can perceive the physical reality of it, just the physical reality of it. And one of the ways that I often say to people, which I think is helpful, that's why I often say it, is <laughs> if I were from uh, another planet, if I were an extraterrestrial being here, and so I didn't know what it felt like to have that kind of body that you have, and you're telling me that you have pain in your knee, I would say to you, how do you know? How can you perceive? What is it like? So pretend you have an ET person who's your companion who's saying, so how do you know you've got pain in your knee? What's it like? And then go, well, it's, it's sort of hot and it throbs and it's sort of a tingly feeling and then every few seconds there's a stabbing thing that sort of shoots from here. 
get to know what it actually is. The body can reveal all this. When you're busy doing that, you're not, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do this. You know, eight more days to go. I don't know how I'm going to be able to handle it. You're occupied with what's actually happening. The drama is reduced. You're more realistic. It's manageable. It's very helpful. But there comes time when the pain is, is too, you can't do that. If it gets that it's dominating you and it's causing you distress, best to move it. But don't move right away. Have some time to explore. And you will probably discover that it's much more manageable than you thought. Our reaction, our tendency is to not want to do that. So keep connecting with the other parts of your body. Have them be your buffer. Then do a little exploration like this. See if this works for you. It's helpful. Similarly, but because we aren't wired for this, we don't do this as much. What about pleasure? When you feel comfortable, be in your body and feel comfortable. Feel the ease when the shoulders do come down and they relax. When the stomach is at ease, allow yourself to actually really sense pleasure and also pain. I mean, both, we can perceive them all. We, we are f- afraid of this. We're afraid of actually feeling comfortable because we don't want to get attached and we don't want to indulge ourselves and we want to you know, restrain ourselves and renounce and all this stuff. But we actually can miss the fact that we can be sitting here quite comfortably and knowing that. So allow yourself to perceive how it is. One of the things that's very um, profoundly revealing as we look at the body, if we contemplate the body, whether it's the body as it breathes, whether it's the different sensations of the body, whether it's emotion in the body, whether it's the body as it moves, as it walks, or as it eats, or as it lies down, or whatever else it does. Even one of the teachings of the Buddha was to be able to perceive the body in terms of whether it's solid or when, when it's liquid or when it's hot or cold or when it's moving or not moving, the elements in other words. In whatever way we perceive the body, if we really do that in a contemplative way and we look closely, what we see begins to change. and We begin to realize that how we see is beginning to change. In other words, what seems to be body, leg, when we really give it our attention, it moves into tingly, swirling, changing energy, whatever whatever it is you may perceive. And so it reveals how we make a certain reality and believe it, but actually if we keep looking, how we are creating our world changes. Because our our world, our body, for instance, isn't what it seems to be. I've had many a time an experience where I'm sitting and being with myself, and I open my eyes to see: is it still here? You know, <laughs> is is there a floor, and is this a body, and is it sitting, and does it have legs? Because it doesn't feel like that when you're inside it. It's a it's a can be a very different thing. So our perception can perceive things not the way that we've assumed it is. We've boxed ourselves into. Uh, a created world, and we all agree and we discuss it as though it is this reality, but actually it's, it's a, way more mysterious. There's way more possibility for seeing it differently. And when we, we are quiet and we contemplate it, 
we begin to realize. So, for instance, the number of you have sat Goenka retreats and, you know, you're actually looking at whether you can feel the top of your head and your cheeks and you're scanning through the body. And it goes from being a body to being a massive tingling vibration, you know, where everything's shifting and moving and swirling around. And what kind of body is that? That's not what I thought bodies were. I thought they were flesh and so on and so forth. So we can, it takes us to shifting the, the possibility of what's real, which is a mystery, which takes us into the mystery, just from simply observing it. So it's way more here than you would think when you first start looking at your body. I have to mention, even though time is going by, that when we do look at our body, there's an aspect of our body, which is a great trap, of course, which is believing it's me. Not just that it reveals all these things and it perceives these things and it has these sensations, but actually we identify with this body. I was saying in the beginning, give it back to nature. It isn't yours. It's actually nature's. You just get it like a vehicle for a number of years. I have a 49... English model. (laughs) Ramana Maharshi says, trying to become liberated while identified with the body is like trying to cross a river on the back of an alligator. (laughs) Pretty dangerous. We, if we identify, this is me, we're very far from freedom. So to antidote the tendency of identification with and all the adornments and all the stylings and all the things that we do to be me and to look a certain way and so on, to pretend, um, the, the Buddha suggests we actually look at the parts of the body in, in their actual form, the 32 parts of the body. For example, there's another way of contemplating your body, that you have hair on your head and hair all over your body and in more dense parts of the body and that there's skin and that there are nails and teeth and on and on, right through inside and sinews and ligaments and guts and the whole deal. Pus and phlegm, it's like, you know, great. As soon as we, as soon as we think, as soon as you think like that, we all go like, yuck. But we don't want to think like that because we want to actually like the pleasure of the body and the attraction of the body and the image the body has and the other person's body. And if you took the person out of their body and just really looked at their body, in this evening, in, looking, in preparing this, I read, this is very interesting, I thought, that the parts of the body that we actually see, I'm talking now about attraction, um, are the parts that are already dead. The alive part of the hair is in the skull. You know, it's right inside the scalp. The stuff that's this part that we play around with is already dead. The nails, the part that the quick is called the quick of the nail is underneath here, and the rest is already dead. The teeth that we get to see, that's the dead part. The living part of the teeth is in the roots underneath. The skin, the stuff that we actually see, isn't alive anymore. It's dead. It's superficial. And we get all a big deal about this beautiful whatever it may be or not so beautiful or not beautiful enough or whatever. It's all dead stuff. (laughs) The Buddha recommended that you actually, there are nine cemetery contemplations. If you want to be really serious about whether what is your body really or what is her body really or his, you know, look and see how it is in its, def- in its parts and how it decays as soon as life force is gone. We rarely have such an opportunity. 
I had such an opportunity. It wasn't cemetery contemplations, but I lived with a man for a number of years who was a PhD candidate, and his PhD studies were, hold your breath, um, the analysis and measurement of human bodies, dead ones, as far as their kinanthropometry qualities, in other words, girths and skin thicknesses and skin folds and muscle thicknesses and densities and bone weights and and it took three days to take a human and turn it into about 32 buckets, all of which were measured things. And so my time when visiting with him, I had a little baby with me at the time, in a hospital in Brussels, a medical school, would be in the lab. I have held brains, I have held kidneys, I have all of it. And so it's a modern version of it, but it's, it, it certainly takes away the illusion of what's beautiful and what's attractive. You realistically see... This is, this is how it works. This is how the sinew moves this ligament. This is how this extraordinary little thing here functions to clean the, you know, the kidney, cleans the whole system from toxic fluids. It's realistic. It wasn't to be yucky and gruesome, the Buddha suggested it. It was like, wake up and see what's actually really here. And you're, we're deluded about what it is and what it means, and isn't it wonderful? It's, it's a vehicle that's brilliant and extraordinary, but get real here. So you have many, uh, if you want to follow contemplations of the body, many ways of doing it to help us wake up to what's really true and not be caught in our versions of reality that seduce us, that keep us away from the freedom of truth. couple of quotes here. Of course, we know this is our, our modern reality about the body and identification with it and so on. We don't like to think about pain and aging and dying and sickness. We keep those so hidden as much as we can and we, on the front of every magazine, make youth and beauty and attractiveness the God. Contemplation of the body and its unattractiveness is not a popular meditation. <laughs> We're happy to try to rid ourselves of anger and hatred because they're painful. We may use metta practices, for example, to try and purify ourselves from the pain. But to meditate on the true nature of this body dulls the appetite rooted in greed and lust because greed is usually associated with pleasure. And isn't pleasure what life is all about? And so, of course, to do this kind of thing, it's, it goes against what we want, what we think is comfortable for ourselves. But as Utejaniya was saying when I was with him, every single pleasurable experience has in it seeds of dukkha because we want it and we want more of it and we make it the standard and then we aim for it. And when it isn't there, we are in a negative state and we're critical and judgmental. So not to spend your time trying to just think of phlegm and dead skin and, <laughs> and all the disgusting things about the body. But at times when we're caught up with identification and, and uh, appearance of things, then it would be an appropriate medicine to be realistic. So use it like you'd use a medicine if you're caught in some scenario where you need a little medicine. You don't take medicine all the time just in case. But if you need it at a certain time, then it's maybe appropriate for you to take. 
know what to finish with it's always nice to finish with something lovely i think what i'd like to just finish with is um is just to encourage you to enjoy having a body and to uh enjoy its elegance and enjoy its incredible ability to move you without thinking we don't think of this and when you go walking outside really enjoy that some of the time that you're seeing and some of the time that you're hearing and that you can taste incredibly beautiful things and that you have a heart that can care and can love and respond and really value and honor this body of ours. It's helpful, it's useful, it protects us from trouble, but it's also wonderful. And so uh, I just would like, yeah, to give you that as an invitation, to leave you with that. So I hope this has been useful. Thank you for your attention. A teacher of mine said to me, as far as instructions in a retreat near the beginning, she said, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. So we have some time for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.